Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode 46. Oh man, I gotta look that up. 47. Somewhere in there. In the 40s. Somewhere in there. Okay, so how are we doing? We're doing okay. It's nice out today. It's a nice fall day. Doing a little bit of reading and it's a little September. bit of writing. It's, yeah, the weather is nice. It's episode 47, by the way. 47. 47. We're getting ready for the Women's Renew Conference up at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. Oh, yeah. You always bring the entire trailer of the bookstore up to that one. It's a big event. I am a regular attender of the Women's Renew Conference <laughs> at IRBC. <laughs> I am there every year. Andy was a speaker last year, though, wasn't he? Yeah. I was, yeah. That's 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 that was a fun time. Was Don't good. they normally have women speak at the oh, women's retreat? Yes, they do, Charlie. Faith yes. Taylor is speaking this year on yes. the Proverbs thirty-one woman. So we've got some. So good what I'm getting at is it's, it's a rare occurrence. Yes, yes. To have a guy want, speak, but they wanted to talk Bible study, and so th- I was really excited to. You're saying that women can't talk Bible study? No, they just know that I. Teach Bible study. And oh, okay. it was that's, like that's a cool a, idea. And, and they, steer, steer wide and clear of what that. What in the world? Of that niche. <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> what is going on right now? Yeah. Okay. So we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. I'll go ahead and start off. Um, first of all, I want to say we got an email this week from a listener asking about a book on contentment called The Envy of Eve Finding Contentment in a Covetous World by Melissa Kruger. And I. I'm working through this contentment series this season. Today, we're going to talk about pursuing contentment in the content episode, the main content of the episode. Uh, so anyways, I've not read this book, but I just went ahead and bought it, and I'm going to try to get it read this week to the point where I can give you a rating. But so far, it looks really good. Um, the first couple chapters, she's actually talking about covetousness and how it relates to contentment, and then she's going to spend the rest of the book looking at key areas where we get covetous. Um, so anyways... I'll give you a heads up on that next week. This week, for my book, I want to talk about a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. This is a classic in the field, and so this is one of the main four books I used to build the study. He was a preacher from England, uh, and the book was written in 1648. Now, he did have like a couple of years stint in the Netherlands, uh, but for the most part, he was in England. He um, is looking at contentment. It's a topical length. It's just a topical treatment of the idea of contentment. And I think it, he does a lot of, a couple of things really well. And I would even say I'm starting to get the feel of like Puritans when they write. So. The feel of the Puritans. Well, wow. so you, you've read some Puritans. Like I, I think we all have. Yeah. There's, they're verbose. They use a lot of words. But I think where, where sometimes some of them shine is application of their ideas. So that's what I've really been helped with in Burroughs' book. There are times where he explains things. And it's so clear, and it's also somewhat memorable, and I would even say beautiful at times, the way he wordsmiths it, that it's very, it's good. So I liked it. I, I would say that this book I mostly used more than I read. I didn't really have a good chance to read straight through. I used it a lot. Um, many people uh, like this book a lot, and I would agree it's a good book. Eric Raymond's book, Chasing Contentment, which I'll talk about another time, he, he uses this a lot. There's a blogger named Tim Challies. He has a whole series where he blogs through this book if you want to read along with him. So there's a couple of quotes here um, that I thought was interesting. First of all, 
I really like his definition of contentment. We referenced this in the first episode this season, but he says this. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition or disposal in every condition. Now, he gives that definition, and then each one of those words, okay, delights in, or or, uh, inward, quiet, gracious, he explains each one. So while he's talking about quiet, this is what he says. When it comes to quiet, all is sedate and still there, like inside of you. That you may understand this better, I would add that this quiet, gracious frame of spirit is not opposed to certain things. So he wants to like lay out what you could be have an inside quiet spirit and not be opposed to certain things. He says, this is one example, he says, to a due sense of affliction, God gives his people leave to be sensible of what they suffer. Christ does not say, do not count as a cross what is a cross. Rather, he says, take up your cross daily. It's like physical health. If you take medicine and can't hold it, but immediately vomit it up, or if you feel nothing and it does uh, not move you, in either case, the medicine does no good, but suggests that you are greatly disordered and will hardly be cured. So it is the spirits of men under affliction. And so he's just going on to say, he's trying to basically say, you can suffer and not be discontent. So I like that. Um, I would give it a six. I'm glad I used it. I'm glad I'm somewhat familiar with it. And uh, I would recommend that you read it. Do you need to buy it? I mean, it's public domain, but maybe there's others you can put on yourself. It's, it's a good book, though. Now, if I go back and read it, I might come back and change it. So I'm reading a couple of books right now. I teach, I teach Old Testament seminar in a couple of weeks, and so I'm just trying to freshen up on some areas in the field of Old Testament seminar. One of them is Aramaic. There's a book, Aramaic, A History of the First World Language. Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke. Uh, Aramaic was also the first uh, lingua franca of the major, the world, really. And um, so so I'm just trying to shore up some information on that. It's going to be a pretty boring book and probably not a good one for books and business. So I'm done with that. Uh, I'm going to go to a second book now, Solomon's Vineyard by Scott Neagle and Gary Rensberg, Literary and Linguistic Studies in the Song of Songs. So I'm continuing my studies in the Song of Songs. This book is an illustration of, of the scholars, at least the first chapter, of scholars... Um, making huge assumptions and based on very little information. Uh, Let me illustrate that. They analyze the Old Testament and they find two different dialects of Hebrew. There's Judite Hebrew and Israelite Hebrew. Their source texts for Israelite Hebrew um, are sections of the Kings and Judges, Micah 6 and 7, only those two chapters, Isaiah 24 to 27, only those few chapters of Isaiah, selected Psalms, Deuteronomy 32. So just one chapter of Deuteronomy is part of Israelite Hebrew. Uh, 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7, Nehemiah 9, just Nehemiah 9. And then the blessings to the northern tribes in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33. Methodologically, like how they're going about their study, do we see any problems with this? Okay, they're only selecting specific parts of whole books and saying, this is one dialect of Hebrew, and the rest of the book is this other dialect of Hebrew. Okay, so they make this assumption, and then they make these huge conclusions based on it. 
Um, I would just encourage you when you're reading and somebody's making an argument based upon ancient Near Eastern history or uh, specific dialects of languages, you should have your like uh, discernment buzzer going off. Be like, okay, this guy might think he knows more about something than there's evidence for him to prove. Okay, um, so there were some pretty significant issues there with Solomon's Vineyard. But the second chapter, which kind of is quite different, deals with alliteration. And I want to read just a, a little bit out of Song of Songs. I want you to listen to this. Shir Hashirim, Asher Lishlomo. Do you notice any sounds there? Shir Hashirim, Asher Lishlomo. A lot of shushing and a lot of erring. And that is a literary device called alliteration. Shir Hashirim, Asher Lishlomo. And the word Asher there, you don't know what it means. That doesn't matter. The sound is what's important. A lot of scholars don't like that word in the text. And this author, they made a case that the reason it's there is because of alliteration. And uh, that's just something that um, I found really helpful from this book. In fact, they go through a lot of different word studies and things that uh, I, I think this book's actually going to be quite helpful to me. Um, because in the Song of Songs, there's a lot of very difficult words and vocabulary that I'll be able to study through. So I thought this book would be a nice illustration just to use for books in business. Is, is this something that you're going to buy? Probably not. I mean, if you don't know Hebrew, it's not going to be helpful to you. But in studying the um, Song of Songs, this book will be really helpful for me, even though some of the perspectives are from scholars who make uh, uh, huge assumptions um, based upon very little evidence. It's an illustration of a book that's written by liberal scholars that can still be very helpful for a conservative evangelical. I'm done. You're not going to rate it? Uh, for me, I'm going to put it at like an eight. I think it's really going to be helpful. There's already several things that I've learned about some vocabulary that I've struggled with in the song. But for the general purpose, general person here, yeah, they're not going to want this thing. Isn't it an eight? Like you're supposed to own it? Yeah, and I need to own it. For you? For me. Yeah, okay. This is like when Bowder had like two ratings, like if you're a scholar. Or I know, it's just like... not. <laughs> Nobody's so going to benefit from probably this. in general. It's like a four. Okay, we'll go with the <laughs> four. If you're an Old Testament professor, it's an eight. <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested in the Song of Songs, it's an eight, and you need to know it or get it. But I still think like you're, you're okay, but your segues, Tim, are just not quite Charlie's. I'm done. The, yeah, I'm <laughs> he's done. Okay, my book is we've we've mentioned it before. It's the Intellectual Life, its Spirit Conditions and Methods. By A. G. Sertelange, or as we like to say, Sertelanges. Sertelanges. What's the O. P. after his name on the title? Oh, I know. Do you know what, what the O. P. stands for? I can look it up. I knew it one time. Is it like an old way of saying O. G. <laughs> old priest? I don't know. <laughs> He's Catholic. Be. It could be. I think it has something to do with his station, but I can look it up. Yeah. So he, it, the title says it all. Intellectual life. He's writing a book about how to have an intellectual life. He comes at it from a couple of different uh, positions or angles. Uh, he, he's, I think, trying to encourage everyone to have somewhat of an intellectual life and trying to tell you how to be disciplined to do that. And then there is this sense that he's writing to people who are vocational thinkers, like uh, like a professor or a writer or something like that. Do you have an answer for our OP? Yeah, so it stands for the Order of Preachers because he was Dominican. And he, like, he's a monk, so or he's yeah. a priest, so he's in the Dominican order. So that's cool. 
<laughs> so I, but you know, he, he might. So have I can't be, I can't be in the order of preachers because I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong type of person. We'd, we'd have to make a new order just for us, not in. Okay, well we can table that. Okay, <laughs> we should table that quickly. So I've been, I've been reading through this, and the reason I'm reading through it, I've actually had it for a long time. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, this is a book that very early on in Thinkling's meetings, which mm-hmm. uh, not the ones we recorded. But like, you know, two or three years ago, uh, Andy was reading as part of his PhD program and it showed up on a list that was given to me by a friend of the program, Josh Boyd. He printed off a book list by like classical uh, education, something, something website. And this was on there and I was just highlighting the books that I already had. I was like, oh, I have that. So I should start reading it. And so I started reading it. And then in conjunction with uh, teaching a college class. I was like, you know, there's a lot of quotes in here that I could serve up at the beginning of uh, class periods to try and encourage students to be good students. And, uh, and, and this, this, uh, this quote that I'm about to read is one of those. I'll read the quote, and then I'll maybe explain it a little bit. So he's, he's differentiating between different uh, types of vocations of thinking. So there's like a, an actual full-time thinker, and then there's, you know, not that. But okay, that, that's kind of the context of, of the quote. So he says, the second state of mind is that of one who has the vocation. So a full-time learner. Okay, and I think that idea of full-time is going to come back into play. So the second state of mind is that of one who has the vocation. It implies a serious resolution. The life of study is austere and imposes grave obligations. It pays, it pays richly but it exacts an initial outlay that few are capable of. And I, this is the, the part of the quote that kind of jumped out to me when I read it. The athletes of the mind, like those of the playing field, must be prepared for privations, long training, and uh, a sometimes superhuman tenacity. We must give ourselves from the heart if truth is to give itself to us. Truth serves only its slaves. That's on page four. And so the two ideas there, one, athletes of the mind, which I think was a great illustration. It's like, if you want to be a good athlete, what do you have to do? You have to put the work in. You have to go to practice every day. You have to be in shape. You have to study the game. You can't just know nothing about it. Uh, before, before we hit record, we were talking about our guys' soccer team getting a, a, a actually, I think uh, our girls and guys' soccer teams won. And, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of work that went into those wins. It's not just show up and play. And that's what he's saying about the mind is you can't just show up and play. Uh, if you're going to be a vocational thinker, you actually have to put work in like a full-time worker. And what I said to my students in class was this, do any of you think of yourself as a full-time vocational learner? And I kind of got these looks like, well, no. And I was like, but guess what you're classified as right now? When you fill out your taxes, what are you? A full-time student. You are classified as a full-time student. You get tax deductions because of it. You or your parents, depending on who claims you. And so for this, for this season of life, every college student is a vocational student. They're paying thousands of dollars to be professionally learned and, and taught. I was like, so why would you do that? Why would you make the financial investment and not put the work in to, to actually be an athlete of the mind? 
And I think that was encouraging to my, my class. I don't know. Maybe one of them can weigh in on that. But that, that's the idea is that if you want, whether, whether you're a vocational learner, so you're a full-time college student, or you're a lifelong learner and you just want to have a life of the mind, you can't do that without exerting effort. It doesn't just happen. Maybe there's like a half of a half of a percent that are so naturally gifted intellectually, they don't have to put work in. But for the rest of us, we, we do. We have to put work in to have a life of the mind, to have an intellectual life. That's awesome. I love it. It fits like with the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon, uh, I think Solomon, writing Ecclesiastes 12 and saying, hey, what have I done? I've accumulated Proverbs and put these sayings together in an orderly way. And then what's he telling his reader to do? Boom, it's your turn. It's biblical to think. God doesn't want you stupid. He wants you smart. That's great. I had a student who loved to work out uh, like regularly, like five, six days a week. And uh, we were meeting regularly and he kept saying he didn't have time to get in the word and study, but he had all these questions. And I said, what if you took one of your physical workouts and changed it for a mental spiritual workout? And it was like a like mind blown moment. And he literally did that. He just swapped one or two out a week for, and it, over time he could see a difference. So I love that book. I'd forgotten that quote, but athletes of the mind, that is like a, that is really good. Yeah. Any other thoughts before we, I've got one thing I just want I've been wanting to bring this into an episode. Um, we, uh, at the, at the Thinklings and the Thinklings podcast, we talk about buying books and stuff. We're not a subsidiary of faith bookstore or anything like that. Um, we do encourage you to buy stuff outside of amazon.com for obviously obvious philosophical reasons, but, and faith bookstore could be a good avenue for that, but faith bookstore doesn't help us out at all. Uh, we are funding everything here uh, at the Thinklings podcast. We've never asked for your money and we never intend to. If God's blessed you though, I would encourage you to, um, bless a student, a student, even at Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Some of them have real needs and they're trying to get through school, participate in some kind of scholarship that faith has available. And, um, and, and that would be uh, a blessing to us. We would be encouraged by that personally. So um, if God's blessed you, think about how you could support what we're trying to do by helping a student. And then support, uh, help what we're trying to do here by sharing, um, uh, sharing information on social media, which I'm not very good at. These guys are be the better, uh, the better marketers when it comes to that stuff. But uh, try to get the word out. Share what we're trying to do here, and uh, you could help us out in that way. With that, we'll, and you know, I do want to throw. I, I kind of want to make a comment. You you texted us the other day that a fairly prominent person purchased a book from Faith Bookstore. Can we can we drop that name? No. Can we do it? We can't. No. Can we tell you what his name no. rhymes with? No. Uh, okay, well, if you want to find that out, maybe just uh, go to the bookstore and ask him. Maybe he'll tell you personally instead of putting up the <laughs> No, I won't. He won't. Okay, well, maybe the other two <laughs> Nimrod sitting here might. Okay, with that, we'll uh, jump to the main content. See you next week. All right, let's have a conversation about contentment again. Actually, today we're going to talk about pursuing contentment. Sounds like a theme. Well, I'm 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 deep into this personal study and contentment, so I'm 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 wanting to share what I'm learning. Ooh, it sounds so. like it could be a nice like um, series for something. 
Yeah, I think so. Maybe a camp or whatever. Ooh, oh. a nice series for a, a podcast. Oh, I, I like think it. That would be We're, Charlie. <laughs> I mean, this is a podcast, Tim. So he's, he's like his hands up, like, come on, Tim. Yeah, I think it's a really nice series for, for podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, um, I've looked at at this point. I've looked at four different books on contentment, and a lot of them have merits, and they're very good. The one I want to just key in on today is William Barclay's book, The Secret of Contentment. I really like this book, and if I probably have talked about it by now on Books and Business, if I haven't, uh, I'm just telling you now, it's something to go and get. It's it's a wonderful book. In it, he covers the material really well. Um, just a quick overview of the book's outline. The first part is on pursuing contentment. He talks about its nature, like what it is. And we talked about that the last time we were together. I gave you some definitions. He talks about the necessity of it. And in the necessity, he's going to give reasons that you need it and you should pursue it. And then he talks about the dangers of discontent. And then the rest of the book, he's talking about how do you obtain contentment. And uh, we'll talk about that at a later time too. But for this one, what I want to do is I want to go to the chapter on the necessity of contentment. And he gives seven reasons that the Christian today ought to pursue godly contentment. I think the reasons are good. We're not going to go through every one in the list, but I'm going to cover a few and then we'll just talk about them. So uh, the, I'll, I'll just read the list. Number one, God has commanded it. Number two, Contentment is a priceless treasure. Number three, a murmuring spirit is a great sin. And when he says murmur, he's talking in Numbers 10 and 11, so it means to complain. Number four, discontent is at the root of much of our sin. Number five, a contented spirit shows our humble submission to God's will. If you recall last time we talked about contentment, the sovereignty of God and your accepting it is actually central. It's like one of the cornerstones, I would say, to contentment. Number six, without contentment, we cannot experience the peace of God. And then number seven, the contented spirit is a worshipful spirit. All right. So let's start off with the first one. Uh, contentment, uh, the first reason to pursue contentment is that God has commanded it. So Hebrews 13.5 has this, and Barclay keys in on it, and it's it's nice because you don't have to wonder if you need to be content. You actually are commanded to. So in Hebrews 13, 5, it says, keep your life free from the love of money. Now I'm going to pause there really quick. We usually, when we think of money, there's that phrase thrown around money is the root of all evil. It's actually the love of money elsewhere in the Bible is the root of all evil. But here the author of Hebrews says, you should keep yourself free from the love of that. And you should be content with what you have. And it's intriguing He's saying you need to be content with what you have. So listener, right now, what you have, you need to be content with it. And then he gives you the reason. For, anytime you see the word for, it's usually reasons following. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so here, what you have is you have the reason to be content with what you have. It's that God is present with you. So that was helpful. Sometimes we think of contentment as something we need to work on, but this is actually a command in scripture. All right. I think contentment is a priceless treasure. His section there is great. We're just going to move on though. I want to talk about murmuring is uh, a murmuring spirit is a great sin. That's a reason you should uh, uh, follow this. He says that we underestimate the gravity of the sin of complaining. 
And so what Barkley does is he walks us through Numbers 10 and Numbers 11. Now, Numbers 10 and number 11 is where the people uh, are complaining to God about food. They, and at one point, they have manna, but they're sick of it, and they want quail. And so they complain to God, and then they complain at one point, saying, oh, that we were in Egypt when we had leeks and onions. And what's intriguing to me is that in Egypt, it was really, really bad. You know, and so Barclay, as he walks through that, he says that the, basically the issue he's talking about is discontent, and he gives three aspects to it. The first aspect, he says, is that discontent involves forgetting God's presence. When you complain, you're, you're showing that you don't think God is aware or present in some way in the situation you're in. Otherwise, he wouldn't let it happen. And really what that's doing is you're flatly denying that God is good and sovereign. A lot of times when we complain, we don't think of it as being against God, but it actually is. Because if God's really sovereign and control of everything, then I'm not complaining about the situation as much as I'm complaining about God not fixing it or doing something wrong. Now, it's our, our sinful hearts, I think, mask that. So every time we complain, we don't think like that. But he's saying that's what Numbers 10 and 11 is actually showing us. The second aspect of discontent is that it involves exaggerating the past. This was, man, this hit me good. The Israelites were really hungry in the desert. And yet, what did they keep remembering? They kept remembering Egypt fondly because of the free food. But, you know, slavery was pretty bad too. So, I mean, I don't know. But here he's saying we have a tendency to do that when we're discontent. Discontent actually changes our perception of the past. It alters our previous reality. So when you're discontent, you're going to look back at things that were really bad or frustrating. You think, oh, that was so great. Why? Because you're looking at the one thing your heart is lusting after that you Mm. had and you don't have it now. Mm. I just, man, that hit me right between the eyes because I look back at all previous situations in life, whatever they are. I remember when I had been at this one job and I left and I went to another one and I was at this new job and it was, there were some problems and I was looking back saying, man, I mean, that was nice because I just, whatever. And my wife lovingly said, yeah, but don't you remember how frustrated you were at the end? Like every day you came home and you were really frustrated because of how it was going. And she was right. And I had forgotten all that. Why? Because I was discontent with my current job and I just wanted whatever it was that I was relief or respect or happiness or whatever my heart was lusting after. So it's intriguing. Uh, discontent means that you forget that God's present and in control. Discontent means that you exaggerate the past. And then finally, he says, the third aspect of discontent is that it involves unbelief. He says, in these contexts, the people had plenty of food, actually. Like they're complaining, like we're starving. And yet every day they can go pick up as much manna as they can eat for the day. And then when that's not good enough, they get quail and they're complaining The way they complain, if you looked at it, it would almost seem like they didn't have any food. And so what they're actually doing at that point is they're not believing that God is good. So just so you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it does say that God actually starved them. Oh, that's right. So I don't know how much I would say that they really had plenty. I wouldn't say they probably had plenty of food. They had enough food. Okay. But again, the purpose of them being starved was... To reveal their hearts yeah. mm-hmm. and that they were discontent. discontent. Exactly. Well, and you've walked us through that before and that's been very yeah. helpful for me 
Because when I go through situations, it's helped me to think just that thought. Mm -hmm. God's allowing me right now to be in a situation of want so that I will see my heart. And it's a heart of unbelief. So that's exactly right. The point is exactly correct. They didn't believe that God was sovereign and good, because if he was sovereign and good, he'd give us more, or he'd give us quail, or whatever else. So, yeah, and it's a good point. The the barely enough food plenty comment, that's mine. I, I mean, let's not attribute that to Barclay until I go back and confirm. Maybe I misread that. Yeah, his, he has a quote, though, that's really good. He says this. You know, Barclay says, when we grumble, we don't... And grumble means complain. He goes through the whole what the word um, complain means, and murmuring, and it sounds like grumbling. It's it's really a neat little word thing. But he says, when we grumble, we don't believe God's in control, and we question his ability to make good on his promises. At the root, then, this is a lack of faith. So I really, that was helpful for me. And then the there's two more of these uh, reasons to pursue contentment. The fourth reason that I want to talk about, there's seven, but I want to talk about one more. Discontent or two more, is the root of much of our sin. So Barclay says this, inordinate desires with their corresponding discontent lead to a host of other sins as well. So he says it like this, think about covetousness, okay? You could be lustful, okay? That's covetousness. Well, what you're actually experiencing is you are discontent with what God has given you, and now your heart's lusting for something else. So you can address the lust, and that's good. But the deeper issue is that you're not content with what God's given you. Think of quarreling and fighting. This is the book of James. Where do fights and quarrels come from? They come from your desires. So here you want something, you don't have it. And so you're willing to sin and fight to get it. He even brings up adultery and murder in the Bible because here's David and he wants Bathsheba. He's not content with however many wives he had at that time. I think it was more than one, wasn't it? I mean, he had more than most men. Oh, but here's this other one. And so what did he do? He murdered and he committed adultery. Now, in all those situations, it would be good to deal with the quarreling, the fighting, the adultery, the murder, and the covetousness. But his point is that under all of those is a discontent heart. Mm. And so if you could address the discontentment, you actually might address all of those sins. That was a really good thought for me. Mm -hmm. Barclay says this is the solution. He says it's vital then that we train the heart learning to be content with what God has given us. And so I thought that was very helpful. Not that you don't deal with those sins. It's that you consider what the root cause is. And then I'll just read a little bit of the last one. There is a, the the final thing he says that discontent leads to is a a worshipful, or a uh, contented spirit leads to a worshipful spirit. And so he says that you can't worship God if you're discontent. So uh, Burroughs, Jeremiah Burroughs, says this. He says, worship is not only doing what pleases God, but it's also being pleased with what God does. Worship entails finding delight in God. But we find delight in God only when we are pleased with his sovereign control over our lives. When we are unsettled, restless, or anxious, we cannot truly delight in God's presence. And then he quotes from the hymn writer, the hymn that says, whatever my God ordains is right. So I thought those were needful reasons to go ahead and pursue contentment. Uh, what do you guys think? I'm loving your stuff on contentment. It's like right on target. It, 
it is convicting, even in my own life. Um, I agree that it's a it is a root sin um, that exposes that that manifests itself in several different ways. So your point specifically on covetousness and lusting and quarreling and fighting um, is right on. Uh, this is great practical uh, truth. Yeah, and I think that James four passage is really revealing. And what I mean when I say that is everything we do is the result of desire. Every action I take is the result of desire. And what's interesting there is in his list in James 4, he actually mentions two of the Ten Commandments. So, like, we're talking, like, the the penultimate of the law, okay? Do not covet, do not murder. And uh, guess what? When you have a desire in your heart that you don't get, so, like, it's something that nobody sees. Nobody sees that desire in your heart until you didn't get it and you kill someone. <laughs> yep. Where do those come from? You lust, you do not have, you murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, like, that escalates really quickly. And, but how, when we're discontent, it's actually a desire that we feel like we have the right to have. Like, mm. Never is someone discontented and, 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 like, we know that we're discontent. This is a difficult thought to communicate. But we, we can know that we're discontent, but we feel like we have the right to be discontent because of what has happened. Yes. But then we don't realize that what has happened, like what we have done, is actually the result of the discontent. And how, like, uh, I, had a, I had a pastor that would uh, describe it as, like, a spiral. Like, imagine, like, like, the top of a Christmas tree, and then there's, like, a spiraling circle that gets wider and wider as you go down, and he would put at the top of that tree is, and it's not really a tree, it just looks like a tree, but at the top of that is the initial problem. And then we have, a, we have an initial reaction, and that's where like that first little spiral comes down. And then you don't respond well. <laughs> that first reaction wasn't good. And so because of the initial problem, you have your initial reaction, which it could be discontent, and then because of your discontent, you actually have an it, you have responding or resulting problems, and you have resultant reactions, and it just spirals, gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you get like lost in a web of of discontentment, and it it, it kind of always go goes back to that very first one, where if you would recognize right away that what's fueling me is that I'm I'm not satisfied in the Lord, I'm not content, and you could just deal with it at the initial problem which is at your own desire, you could save all the rest of that. But anyway. That's very helpful because what you said, the satisfying the Lord, I think oftentimes I hear people quote uh, that very famous line from the catechism, man is, or God is most glorified in man when man is most, uh, what, satisfied in him or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm butchering the phrase. And I remember thinking like, what does it mean to be satisfied in God? But this is actually... Um, like this is concrete examples of being satisfied in God. If I don't have something I think I want and I think I deserve and I'm willing to submit to God, then I'm satisfied in him and what he desires. And that's much more concrete than the abstract you need to be satisfied in God. So coming into your final point there, the contented spirit is the worshipful spirit. I think there he's even getting at the, um, the way to be content and to have victory over discontent discontentment. Um, when I am struggling to be content, what should I do or what do I do? 
And I mean, a situation arose even this week where I was personally struggling with this and I realized it. And that's often the first step in just saying, okay, that's sin. Well, what is it? Well, it's the flesh. All right. So what would, should I do? What would be uh, the, the spirit? And one of the things I think is get connected to worship and just praying and thanking the Lord for the blessings that he has given you. Okay. Praying and thanking the Lord for the blessings of that person and the good character traits that they have, even though they ticked you off or whatever <laughs> it was. Okay. And, and, and that would be like a response uh, to then breed contentment and gratefulness, that idea of gratefulness and worship. The last point I would just tag off of what you said, Charlie, was you said uh, you're discontent and you, th- you think it's okay because you're like, you're owed it. What was it you said? Like, like I'm supposed to have this. You deserve and it. I, yeah, I deserve we, it. We can know that we're, ju- I think we sometimes know we're discontent. Like, man, I don't like this. But then we actually justify it. Like, yeah. We, we feel like we have the right to be mm-hmm. that way because of what has happened. Yeah. But be, the way that we're interpreting what has happened is through the lens of what I wanted because mm-hmm. it's it's in me, it's not the external. And so the justification for the way that I'm feeling now is actually a result of the, what I was wanting before, and when I didn't get it, it caused the way I'm feeling. It's like this intricate little ball, yeah. but it's to simplify it, it's in you. Yes, yep, that's it's what I wanted. It's not external, it's, it's in you yep. that's causing it. So, and, and then that was in the last episode where we covered this. I thought one of the most helpful things was that the contentment is sourced in you, not out of you. So changing your externals won't do anything for contentment. Even if it does make you content, watch out. Cause when those externals go away, you're not really content. But what I really appreciate is that sometimes when you don't get what you want and you're a little ticked at God and you pick up on that, it's because of what you said. You think you deserve that or you're owed that, or it would be right for you to have that, and you don't have it. And I think you'd actually, if you were really honest, you'd say, I'm being wronged by God. Mm. He should have given it to me. So it's connected to his sovereignty and goodness. Again, I think it's the internal part, and it's the sovereignty of God part. So here's our final thought from God's Word. Just like Andy has been talking about contentment, I want to go back to 1 Corinthians. And last time we we ended in 1 Corinthians 1.19, but I want to read... Uh, 18 and 19 again, and then keep going. So this is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but the to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment, in the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so you're going to hear a similar emphasis here like we did the last time. And again, we, we, we think about a lot of things on this podcast. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes, hmm. that are th- we're thinking about <laughs> thinking, 
it is a good exercise to think about our thinking, but we can, we can go down the wormhole, go hop down the rabbit trail of, of analytical thinking. And then we almost assume that good thinking is good ministry. And he actually very specifically here, as it relates to the communication of God's word and the content of the gospel says that the message we're preaching is folly. It's like, there's a statement that I've made to a lot of college students is that you're never going to make holiness relevant to a sinful culture. Ooh, that's good. You won't, you won't do it. And to add a facet to that, there's nothing you can say. There's no specific wise way of presenting the gospel. That's going to make the gospel less foolish to an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do. It's, it's not, uh, that they really respect you, that your argument is flawless, that you said it or presented it in the perfect way. None of that is going to make a foolish message any less foolish. And the reason it's foolish is not because it itself is objectively foolish, but it's how these people perceive what is true. And so, you know, when I think about that, that really takes the pressure off of me that I don't have to be a certain thing. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to say it just the right way. I just have to say the message. I'm not mm-hmm. relying on myself and communication. I'm relying on the content of the message, which ultimately is a person. It's Jesus that I'm preaching. Now, I do have a professor that would look at that verse and say, it isn't saying, since, it, since the message is folly, that doesn't mean the messenger can be folly. <laughs> so <laughs> we, do, we do want to approach this, which this being the gospel. We want to approach it with sobriety. We want to approach it with the seriousness that it deserves because these are the words of eternal life. But remember, it's the message that's important. And our lives should be a testimony to the fact that Jesus has died for us and he rose again for us. And it's through him alone that we have life. And when we think about the way we present that and the way that we uh, sometimes think our cleverness is what wins people. Just remember, it's not. The, the real wisdom here is in Christ crucified, and that is what saves us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.